Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Dr. Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers, now get to know them and discover the stories behind the science. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Today I'm happy to welcome Nada Shabado from McGill University on this show. Please let me briefly introduce you to our audience. You got your MD and PhD from Institut Curie in France in 1995 and 1998 respectively. You then moved to McGill University to do postdoctoral training. Then in 2003 you became assistant professor of pediatrics at McGill University where you became associate professor in 2010. And since 2014, you are professor of pediatrics at McGill University. A question I'd like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science? So I was interested in medicine from the get-go. Ever, I was a child, I really dreamt to be a doctor. I wanted to be a surgeon. This was really the only thing I could think about. And uh, I, I, I grew up in France, and in France, you need to kind of go through a very hard exam at the first year. Everybody's admitted to med school, and then out of, uh, they take only the top 10%. And I was 16 year old when I, when I started it, and I didn't succeed, and it's almost like life was stopping. And I redid it, and I still remember the joy I felt when I went into medical school. And then as I was advancing in medical school, Immunology was something that kind of fascinated me. So when, you know, you, you see those T-cell receptors, how they are done, the B-cell receptor, the immunity, exquisite. So biology started to become something even more fascinating than just kind of uh, looking at the human body and, and helping and cure. Still was, is uh, part of what I love doing is taking care of others and whatever. But the way uh, it kind of shaped me is that I understood that if I was to kind of treat better, I needed to understand. And then understanding was so inherent in biology and specific things that I just delved more and more and more. And actually, I changed. I wanted to become a surgeon. And I did gazillion surgeries when I was a medical uh, a student. And uh, during my residency, I completely changed. I did immunology. I did uh, a master's in biochemistry at the same time in my residency. And at the end of my residency, I went for, I did a PhD in immunology and uh, it was, uh, I got hooked. I used to work with primary immune deficiency and my mentor, uh, um, Anna Fisher, showed me how, you know, we could really uh, ease our pain when we lose patients or we don't understand by, by trying to make it better by understanding for the others and that the bedside could be right next to the bench side. And uh, it was it's this commute between the two was not a commute. It was a symbi symbiotic. Mm. And that's how I kind of got interested more and more in biology. So you, you have an MD and a PhD. So is this really that you have this dual role? Are you still in this dual role or are you focusing more on the one or the other? You have to focus at some point. So I'm still I'm I still practice, but from uh so I did uh, a clinical fellowship. I did also a postdoc. I really have both formation. I did everything in both on both sides, uh, not because I had to, but I thought that I it was a better way of, of going into to both and get, gathering tools and understanding better. And when I opened, when I got 
when I went to Canada, because my husband is Canadian and I had to be friends, I had to completely shift gears because I used to work in primary immune deficiency in stem cell transplant and whatever. And I went to oncology and I was asked, what did I want to do? And I said, okay, I want to have my lab. And, and they said, okay, choose. And <laughs> I was looking at primary immune deficiency where like really in Canada and Quebec, like nothing compared to the density in Europe and the recruitment in Europe. And it was impossible. Leukemia, everybody was working on leukemia. And at this time I started in 2003, brain tumors in kids were uncharted territories. And I saw a paper where there were two signaling pathways that I had worked at nauseum in, in T cells, which were the AKT and the RAS pathway that seems to be active in glioblastoma in the adults. And I said, okay, why not look in the kids and see if they're active? And I started my lab really on this because uh, the children's where I am was recruitment center for brain tumors in Quebec. And there, those seemed like really so bad, miserable outcomes and needed uh, a change. And I started there. And yeah, and then yeah, and then in 2012, this was your your first uh, major paper, at least, um, and this was one of the first studies to identify mutant histones. They are now called uh, oncohistones as drivers of certain pediatric brain tumors. Um, can you talk about this paper? The list of authors is quite long, and it also involves many people from Germany, where I currently live. Uh, so this must have been quite an effort to put this together. So it was. It's less than an effort that you would have imagined. It's funny how sometimes. Uh, if you're prepared and some lucky strokes happen, they can happen. So when, when I started, the first thing I said, okay, those glioblastoma in kids are probably different than the adults because they really are behaving differently. They have different location, different stuff. And my first paper in 2007 that's published in journal Clinical Oncology, it was a hard pub publication that highly cited, was the first to show that even if they look the same under a microscope, they're really not driven the same way in kids and in adults. And from there, I said, okay, there must be something different because in adults, you have a very messed up uh, karyotype, a lot of chromosomal alteration or whatever. And in kids, they seem to be like super bland. And I'm, as I said, immunologists have a lot of genetics. I thought about it almost like a genetic thing. And I said, there must be something that is unique to them. And then the IDH mutation was uncovered by, uh, by several groups in the U.S., in the young adult, uh, and I said there may be something to that effect. And I partnered with Stefan Pfister, who is uh, at the DKFZ. He was way more interested in methylation. I think not a lot of people thought that exome sequencing, there must, that there would be mutation. Cancer was too complicated to be simple. And I was banking on it being more simple. So we have divided tasks. I said, okay, I was working on methylation. I worked in collaboration with them on the methylation, and we got the sample and we did the exome sequencing. And I paid it out of my own pocket. It's out of my salary support that I paid for those exomes, to tell you the truth, because I was so convinced that we would find something. And uh, Jacek Majewski, who is a, a senior reporter on this one with, uh, with Stefan and me, it was he really he put a master's student, Jeremy Schwarzenschuber. I'm, I bet he, 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 he wasn't convinced we would find anything. And I still remember the day they called me, the 24th of July, 2011, and they told me, Are you seated? I said yes. And they told me that. And it's very funny because I knew what we had because I was teaching in order to become, to have tenure and whatever you need to teach. And I was teaching uh, uh, molecular biology of oncogene. I had chosen epigenetics because I wanted to kind of learn about a field that I wasn't, I, I wasn't very at ease in. 
and that I, I was showcasing the 2006 paper uh, in cell by that showed the bivalency, the K27 distone 3 K27 trimethylation and lysine 4 trimethylation that do are in stem cell causes this bivalency and how the K27 trimethylation was the dominant mark. And guess what? I find the mutation in K27, the K27M, and then the G34M. After that, this is where we went. And the other people were, you know, getting samples wasn't easy, so they collaborated samples, some expertise to look at the telomeres, some expertise to look at the ATRX that we saw to be additionally mutated. So this is why this is the long list of orders. So what is then the function of this mutation, or what does it change? So this is what took us so long to figure out. So in, initially, you know, it's a heterozygous mutation. It's present in only one of the 32 histone 3 coding genes, okay? It can happen, the K27M can happen either on the canonical versus a non-canonical histone. And it doesn't need to be incorporated in chromatin now we know to mediate its effect. And its effect is in trans, it's global. And what initially we thought, and it's not our work, it's uh, the work of Dave Alice and Peter Lewis, who was a postdoc in his lab, did the beautiful work, the alphabet. And he showed that each time you change the lysine to methionine on the histone 3 tail, either for lysine 4, lysine 9, lysine 27, or lysine 26, you had a global inhibitory effect on the metal transferase domain of the respective metal transferase. And if you model it, and actually the crystal modeling of those metal transferases became possible thanks to the mutation because it rendered the interaction more stable so you could capture it, okay? So the affinity to the mutant peptide is quite higher, which makes the enzyme way slower and way less effective in mediating the higher uh, metal marks. So the monomethylation is lower, but not that much lower. The dimethylation of lysine 27 is also lower. It goes to the level of a tri in a normal cell. And actually, the one that's the most effective is the trimethylation of lysine 27 on any histone 3 residue. So you ask yourself, why? Well, if you look at embryonic stem cells, they have the bare necessity in terms of lysine 27 trimethylation. So PRC2 comes lands, PRC2 is the complex that mediate the monodion trimethylation. EZH1 and 2 are the uh, uh, enzymes within this complex that kind of mediate this, uh, this uh, the, the methylation of this mark. So they get recruited to their area of interest, which are CPG islands, and those nucleation sites are quite specific in cells. This is what really will deliver your patterning and the, have the embryo uh, go and pattern and lineage commitment and all of that. Very specific. And the trimethylation initially is super restrained. And what we think is this mutation is making uh, this enzyme revert to how it should be in an original progenitor. Not leave there, because if you leave, you commit and you differentiate. So, for me, it stalls differentiation. I call it Peter Pan, because Peter Pan, age up till seven, I'm using this number like out of my head, but he doesn't want to age beyond. And this mutation, the progenitor it rises in, is immortalized at that time. And we have a new paper in Nature Genetics that's in press, where we show really that the patterning is completely respected. And the Hox genes, 
that are actually genes involved in patterning can be used as a temporal uh, spatial zip code to know this mutation arose just after this patterning step. When after, I don't know, but it kind of, we could time it. And it just freezes the cell in its original way. And after that, it multiplies eternally and acquires mutation. And this is how tumors form, I think. Yeah. So you you just uh, yeah described the effect on HGK27, and but you also said that it's not only like HGK27, but you also specifically looked at HGK36 um, and uh, the mutation there. Um, so what is the specific effect on HGK37? Is it the same effect? Um, so K27M and K36M, K2M, they share the same thing. And believe it or not, they hone in on the same thing in the end. It's all about uh, uh, redistribution. So this work we did with, the, it's Peter Lewis that led this work and I collaborated heavily. I'm a CEQO senior with him on the science paper that was published in 2016. And Xiaolu, who was a postdoc in, uh, uh, in Dave Alice's uh, lab at that time, spearheaded this project. So the K36M mutation was identified by the group of uh, Adrian Flanagan and Peter Campbell in uh, um, chondroblastoma. Chondroblastoma are mesenchymal tumors. Uh, they are in the bone, they arise in bone, and they are benign, but they are still maiming, okay? And 96% of those chondroblastoma have K36M mutation. I never see a K36M mutation in the brain, okay? And what we said, okay, what is it doing? And this is the only mutation. The K27M, we have added mutation that are needed to promote a full oncogenic uh, transformation. The K27M just stops cells from differentiating, and then with time they acquire other things that will make them uh, become tumors and like in very, very hard to treat tumors. The K36M occurred on its own, and when we looked in other mechanism-camel tissues, we identified it in sarcomas, which are also tumors of the bone, which are higher uh, ranking. And it was the only mutation, actually, in contrast to the K27M. So what is it that it's doing? When Chow expressed it in mouse, mesenchymal stem cells, when you put the K36M, it created tumors in mice subcutaneously. Not if it was a K27A, not if it was a G34R or K27M, believe it or not. And what he showed is that it also blocked differentiation. Because the mesenchymal stem cells, if you push them to differentiate into adipocytes, into bone cells or other things, they are able to do it. But when they had the K36M mutation, it stopped there. Also, the same thing, blockade and differentiation. And then what did it do on chromatin? I told you the K2M mutation inhibits the metal transferase, respective metal transferase. What she showed exquisitely is that the lysine 36 dye and the lysine 36 tri were really super decreased in the context of K36M. So what happened, it's not the tri that's important. It is probably to some extent, but it's mainly the lysine 36 dye on histone 3, which is a, a mark, a chromatin mark, that was really completely underappreciated until then, that is the one that's mediating oncogenicity and probably has a role in the K27M. I'll explain why. Everything, you think that chromatin is a desert, it's not a desert. It's populated by mark that have their own boundary that some cross-talk and can coexist together. Other can never coexist on the same nucleosome. The lysine 36 dimethylation 
is one of the major breaks for the spread of K27 tri motivation. You don't have K27 tri and K36 dye super hard to exist. And to overcome the K36 dye, it takes a lot of effort for the enzyme to deposit the tri on a lysine, on a, on a nucleosome that has a lysine 36 dye. Okay. So the first thing, both of them are at odds, almost like Trump and Pelosi. They cannot share the same things if you want to kind of have it visual. Okay. So when you lose the lysine 36 dye, your K27 tri has a field day. PRC2 is happy. It can spread, spread fast. And this is exactly what happened in large area. And this is a very abundant mark, the lysine 36 dye. When you lose it, you allow the K27 tri to spread and it spread into the intergenome. But everything is in rate limiting quantity. When you spread from some areas, you lose density in other areas. And so you have places that get devoid of K27 tri or have less K27 tri. And the other thing, the K27 tri is there to recruit PRC1. And PRC1, the canonical PRC1, that recognize the K27 tri, recognize so many other things, you dilute repression. So areas that should be repressed gets expressed. And areas that should be expressed get repressed. And this redistribution is the same thing. In one thing, the K27M, you just keep the same repression. In the K36M, you dilute repression that already exists and you gain repression in other areas. And the endpoint is the same. You become, again, more stem and blocked in your differentiation pathway. So in 2019, you then uh, investigated this further, the connection between H3K27M and the PRC2-mediated repressive chromatin. Is there anything um, you can add to this? Okay, so why the question is, for me, people think that the K27M is an EZH2 inhibitor. It is not a regular EZH2 inhibitor. EZH2 inhibition inhibitors act on monodyne tri equally, and the tri is almost obliterated. The K27M really is able to the thing. I don't know if you've heard about EZH, EZH interacting, uh, EZH2 interacting protein or inhibiting protein. It is uh, a protein that is expressed uh, abnormally in specific cancer, like Osteophasa uh, group A ependymoma, which is another form of brain tumors, and has been also found by the group of Alishilatifar in endometrial cancers. Okay. Why am I mentioning it? Because this, uh, gene, the gene of that encodes for EZIT, it was used to be called CXOR69. You have it only in placental mammal. And if you look at the different origins of, of this, it's completely different between these different species, except for a sequence of 15 amino acids. And guess what? Within those 15 amino acids, you have a K27M sequence. And actually, people showed uh, that it actually is inhibits, it's exactly like a K27M, and it inhibits the deposition of K27 tri, dyne uh, tri, like K27M. And this is also another argument to show that you don't need to incorporate the histone 3 mutant K27M in order to have this effect, because EZIP has it and is not incorporated. And EZIP is, is present in only in specific cells, the placental cells, 
and probably in very early progenitor and some germ cells. So it's really a very specific pattern and it is its aim in life, I think, is like K27M to just restrict the spread of the K27 tribe. So what is K27M doing to PRC2? It's making it not move K27 tri from CPG island. Because again, what you want is to maintain the same architecture of an early progenitor and it prevents further differentiation. In physiology, this is to just time differentiation in order if there, there are really, it's almost like a, a symphony. If you play too fast, it makes no sense. Too slow, it's not nice to hear. You really need to time it in order for an organism to have the good number of progenitor cells and the good tempo of differentiation, especially in the brain. And the brain is where we have so much diversity. And if you do it too fast, you lose this beautiful diversity. And if you do it too slow, you may gain more. And more is not good in brain because too many synapses is complicated. So I think this is why those mutations are so much found in brain, the K27M, ESIP, and others, because they are messing up with the uh, differentiation and the lineage commitment. And their role is to just make PRC2 stay on its shores. There are more things that we're finding, but it's for another part. So we talked about H3K27, we talked about H3K36, but you also looked at other or at mutations at other loci uh, or at other residues. And there is one example, it's the H3.3G34. That's um, beautiful. <laughs> okay. can, can you talk about this mutation and its effect? Yeah. So again, the G34, we saw in our initial paper in 2012, we found K27M uh, and G34R, more rarely a V in those brain tumors. What was super striking from the get-go is that the G34R or V mutation are exclusive to histone 3.3. Yeah, there was another question that I was wondering, why is it that it oh, are located it, at H3.3? So again, it's a, so remember that K27 is post-translationally modified, as is K36. The G34 is the orphan. It has zero post-translational modification. However, it sits right, super right nearby, what? Lysine 36. Lysine is your smallest amino acid. And it's changed to a bulky, either arginine or valine or tryptophan, because W was discovered also by the group of Adrian Flanagan and Peter Campbell in giant cell tumor of the bone. And I don't see a W ever in the brain, and I'll come to that after that, okay? And all of those G34 mutations, up to now, They're exclusive to H3F3A mainly, and the one in the bone can also happen on H3F3B. And those are the two genes that encode the non-canonical histone 3.3. Small little things about non-canonical histone 3.3. Histone 3.3, non-canonical, is independent of the cell cycle. You don't need a cell to divide in order to deposit. This is the one that is exquisitely deposited in your telomeres and maintain telomere integrity 
in heterocentric chromatin and all of the ERV endogenous retroviruses are coated with histone 3.3 nucleosomes work by David Alice's group and, and others. And any action you want into your, your, your chromatin, you introduce a nucleosome with histone 3.3 because this is where you could destabilize and open or close. So any action you want, you want a nucleosome with histone 3.3. The histone 3.1 and 2, which are the canonical one, are produced during the uh, cell cycle during the S phase. And I think they are more filler on your chromatin. And there's really different chaperones that will deposit the histone 3.3, whether it's in the euchromatin or on the telomeres. In our initial finding, we found that the ATRX is mutated and it's 100% in the G34 mutant tumor which actually prevent them from putting histone 3.3, mutant or non-mutant, on your telomeres. And actually, you acquire a phenotype that was described that's called alternate lengthening of telomeres because your chromatin is loose, your DNA could recombine, and this way you could lengthen your telomeres and get a little bit of immortality through that, like the third promoter mutation. But it's another way of lengthening your telomeres. So that's one thing, but we think those HRX mutations are doing something else. Because if, remember, everything is in dose-limiting quantity. Your histone 3.3 is present in dose-limiting quantity in a cell. If you deposit it in telomeres, probably 30 or 40% of your total pool goes there. But if you can't deposit it there, 30 or 40% of your pool is where? Able to be deposited on new chromatin. And here A, which is the chaperone that can deposit it, has a field day because it has sole custody of the histone 3.3. And you have more action happening in your chromatin. We're trying to decipher why is that. And this is a way to compensate for the fact that it's not post-translationally modified. Okay, so by number. But what is it doing on its own? I spoke about the lysine 36 and I spoke about the bulky change in those. What we, what other people have shown, and we collaborated to the work that Peter Lewis did, and uh, other people showed the same thing, is that it inhibits the recognition of a post-translationally modified lysine 36. So the dye, or, and more importantly, the tri for some, cannot be recognized specifically. So histone 3.3 lysine 36 tri is not recognized or not deposited. When it's not recognized or deposited, what happens is your friend K27 tribe can come, similar to what I told you, and paste it and silence it. And other things can happen. And this is a work that uh, Dave, uh, that Peter Lewis showed in, and we collaborated to that. When we looked at the uh, giant cell tumor of the jaw, which have, uh, of the bone, I'm sorry, that have the G34W mutation, we saw this. The, the change starts in cis. It's small change over time. You prevent the, record, the, the, the methylation of lysine 36 tri, and other marks get actually uh, take advantage of that and get redistributed. And it's almost like a domino effect. You, it, you, you transform your chromatin and it becomes oncogenic. But there's more than that. And this is a paper, and I'm going to share with you this. This is a paper that we have in revision. It's not yet published, but I think it's data that is beautiful data. 
all of the data that I've spoke to you about, except for the paper that we had on the giant cell tumor of the bone, which was done in uh, 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 by, by CRISPR editing the mutation in situ, were done by overexpression experiments, which are, you know, it's good, but everything has limits. And in biochemical assays, sometimes just it's a question of dose and you could have results that, that varies. There are two there's, there are two papers that attracted our attention in 2019 and 20 by the group Elizabeth Blosch and others, where they showed germline mutation in histone 3.3 that mediate neurocognitive defects, huge uh, neurodevelopmental problems. And guess what? One of those patients was a histone 3.3 G34V patient. We contacted this group, and then we contacted the other group, and through the help of Elizabeth Blosch, we got Another patient that's a G34R, histone 3.3 germline, they don't have cancer. They have huge neurological impairment. And guess what? The other thing that they had when we revisited the story, they were born fine. But then around the age of six to eight months, they started declining. So neurodegeneration leading to severe neurocognitive and neurodevelopmental disease. Okay? We modeled this in mice. Mouse models are beautiful. It took us six years. And we had a phenotype in mice, and then when we had the human, we were able to kind of make things make sense. So we put on the same two distinct background, a G34R or G34V or G34W, an indel in the histone 3.3 or a WAPA. Indel and WAPA behave the same. And what the first surprise came is G34W phenotype is completely distinct from the G34R. The R have neurodevelopmental defects, and I'll go to that. The W, the mouse, all of the, and we did gazillion behavioral tests. We looked at the brain and whatever. There's limited, if anything, in the brain in the G34W. They die of musculoskeletal problems, similar to what we see in the humans, because the W are more in the mesenchymal tissues than they are, and the R, the V is an intermediate between the two and the R. The mouse are miserable at 10 weeks, 12 weeks. They really are fine, and then they start shaking. They have hindbrain clasping. They have paresis. The females have dystocia, neuro, neuromuscular like to no end. And the, when we looked at the brain, the brain size is smaller, and they have neuroinflammation, huge neuroinflammation. They have attrition of neurons and an inflammation. And you ask why? And this is where, with the help of uh, Ben Garcia, we did mass spectrometry on those uh, th those things, and we saw that the effect on the lysine 36 is differential between R, V, and W. The R are the one that deplete a lot in cis, the lysine 36 dye, and the tri, but compared to the V and the W, it's really the R. So why is that important? Because the lysine 36 dye histone 3 was shown by Chao Lu, and we collaborated in that work to recruit what? DNMT3A. DNMT3A is a de novo metal transferase that's super key to mediate CH methylation, which is exquisite and exclusive to neurons. So, what we, are, we were seeing is a depletion of lysine 36 dye. You asked me the question, why histone 3.3 versus histone 3.1? Neurons are post-mitotic, meaning they don't divide. So with time, 
it's the Estonian 3.3 that gets incorporated is humongous, and becomes the majority of Estonian 3 being there. And this is when a mutation can have its beautiful effect because it's amplified chemotherapy. And in the intergenome and in other area, the lysine 36 dye is not deposited correctly, cannot recruit correctly the NMT3A, which cannot deposit CH methylation. And why is the CH methylation is important? Because this is how you silence those areas that have complement and innate immunity genes that are expressed normally transiently during neural development. And they're expressed what complement is there for pruning. Have you heard of pruning? Yeah, kind of. <laughs> Sorry, I'm, it's, it's, so it's pruning is when I told you too much synapses are not good. Yeah. So when a child is born, there are a lot of interaction that becomes because he learns how to walk, to crawl and whatever. And a lot of interaction are made and you need to put order in the number of synapses that are being generated. And this is where pruning is very important. You express the neurons, express the complement, recruit the microglia that clips the excessive synapses. And this process has a start, but has an end. And the end, and people didn't appreciate that, is CH methylation and recruitment of the NMT3A. And this is why the NMT3A is associated with a decrease of synaptic density, because this is how you really remove excess. And the problem in the G34 mice and human is the on signal is normal and is on, but they cannot have enough signal for the pruning, and this is how they degenerate. And I think this is why it's in revision in cell. It doesn't mean it's going to be accepted, but for me, it's beautiful paper in that it shows those mutations are teaching us about normal physiology, normal behavior and things. Those human mutants, unfortunately for them, it's not going to be helpful. But for others, by understanding why they're here, we can understand even more about how to modulate synaptic pruning. And pruning is important also in schizophrenia in other neurodegenerative diseases. And there may be a role to that effect. Yeah. So did you also look at, like we talked about that, um, yeah, isolated histone mutations, but can they also occur together? Like two histones or residues can be mutated? No, they're mutually exclusive. And more than that, this is why we think they're very heavily linked with development. One of the things that was fascinating to us, and Stefan's group was one of the first also to kind of show it with us, is when, because we had access to clinical information, the K27M mutation, the histone 3.1, exquisitely the brain funds very young children. The histone 3.3, K27M, exquisitely the midline brain between children and young adults. The G34, exquisitely and exclusively, the temporoparietal brain between 12 and 35 years. IDH mutation is the frontal brain, a little bit more older. The G34W, exquisitely the giant cell tumor of the bone. It's very, it's... Uh, uh, it, very uh, specific. Very specific, and they do not coexist because... They do something, they're probably are converging on similar mechanisms, which are the redistribution of major complexes. And I'm mentioning that because I think this is where the therapies might converge. It's always easier to have one therapy for all, but it's, uh, 
it's it's and understanding where they converge is going to be important, but they do never coexist together. And it's never if you find like for example that people that will find a histone three point one G thirty four R, it's meaningless, doesn't do anything. And it's like incident. And there's there's one tumor that I know of that has a K twenty seven M, and there is but it has also acquired a, a hypermutator phenotype, and there is some three point one G thirty four R, but it's it doesn't mean anything. So to finish off this interview, um, I have two more general questions. Um, the first one: um, Did you, at one point of a career of your career, face the situation that you have reached a dead end, or did not know how to proceed to unravel the questions you wanted to answer? Always, each time you double guess and whatever. If I would be lying if I said so. When I so when we found that they were completely distinct from the adults and whatever, if it wasn't for the fluke and the luck of next generation sequencing, we would have been stuck forever because it would have been going with different pathway. And I was like kind of turning in circles. It's not that I don't like pathway. I did my life in T cell signaling, so I I I, I am comfortable with this. But it's just it didn't seem right. And this is so now it's uh, you, you always come to that end. But this is the beauty of working with different people. This may actually kind of give you another perspective and, and going to and listening to other talks, other things. It gives another perspective on your work. So in the last 36 minutes, we have taken a journey through your scientific career. Can you maybe give a short summary about your most important findings or something that we might have missed? Uh, my most important finding is the histone mutations. I, that's without a doubt. It was like, a, I was, it's up to now. It's like a goal. It's not a goal line. It's like, a, those are tools for us to kind of tease out development and other things and understand more of the chromatin component. So yes, this is, and things that I've missed, uh, I wish I was, I, I wish I had done epigenetics before, but maybe it's not a good wish because, because I came to it from completely unbiased. There's something that I want to mention is like sometimes coming new to a field with a clean slate is an advantage because you have no preconception of what's possible or what's not possible. And you go about it and you say, oh, I, it's possible. And, I, and then when people tell you, no, but we thought it was impossible. Like, yes. This is I didn't know that it was impossible. <laughs> exactly. And sometimes you really need to revisit those dogmas. And have let's say okay maybe maybe I'm wrong maybe really I'm wrong if you're too convinced sometimes it's wrong. Yeah. So thank you Nada for your time and for being on the show. Thank you very much for your interest in in our work and for inviting me. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much, Stefan. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find all the mentioned references in the show notes. Please rate review and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at activemotif.com, and we'll give you a shout-out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com forward slash blog. Thanks for listening and stay tuned.